some of the most successful investors come up with their own unique framework and set of rules that they follow when they research the stocks and pick winners from losers. One such framework is called Blast Framework and is created by Steve Symington, one of the latest partners to our company, Stockard. Today, I have Steve on the show to talk to you about his Blast Framework and the portfolio he's created using that framework. I'm super excited to welcome Steve Symington to the show. I, I've written for The Motley Fool, where I started kind of publicly writing about stocks. I've written more than 8,000 articles for them uh, that were syndicated through virtually every platform and uh, managed multiple real, real money portfolios for The Motley Fool, including their artificial intelligence portfolio, and then one that was actually focused on the years approaching retirement, fun services they had. And uh, then for several years, I was a, a founding lead advisor at Seven Investing Group. I'm actually back at The Fool now, but I've also started a website called Bottom Line Investing investing uh, because I, I had uh, many requests from people who followed me along the way to, uh, to say, you know, how do I more closely follow uh, what you're doing, uh, the stocks that are specifically on your radar outside of just normal coverage, the fool. So uh, I launched Bottom Line Investing. And part of that uh, was to introduce a service that uh, people could follow with my um, preferred portfolio. So if I was to take money and put it to work now, uh, where would I put it? So it's at bottom line investing and also, of course, on stock card. And uh, yeah, I am basically telling people in advance uh, which stocks I'm selling and which stocks I'm buying. How do I find these stocks? How have I done this over the last 15 years? You know, I bought NVIDIA back in 2009 and kept adding to it. And that became my first hundred bagger, which was amazing last year, you know, and, and buying companies like Lululemon earlier, buying companies like Amazon 10 years ago when it already seemed huge. And it's been a 10 bagger since then. How do I find those? How do I hold on to them? and quantify it. So we came up with a, a fun little acronym to, to quantify that strategy. And I call it my BLAST investment strategy. So you know, we can just go straight down the letters. Uh, first, B, big impact. I, I want companies that are working to make a significant positive difference in the world. You know, they, they need to be able to fundamentally change the way we do things for the better. And that's sort of a baseline for the businesses that I want. I want businesses that are trying to change what we do for the better. Uh, but I also want L, a large market. Sometimes companies like Amazon can be great investments, right? Those mega cap tech names, large caps, et cetera. But the companies that I'm focusing on, uh, bottom line investing are companies that I can't necessarily write about publicly at The Motley Fool uh, because it causes weird swings <laughs> and we have to be careful of those things. Uh, so they might be very, you know, either micro caps or small caps or even mid caps. I'll get up into that range. There's a couple of them in there, but I want companies that are chasing large total addressable markets. This should be in billions, not millions and, and early in their growth stories. So big impact, large market. Uh, and I also want adaptable management. I've written at length about the importance of early companies and large companies alike, their ability to pivot their operations to cater to market conditions as needed. I want companies that need to have you know, not only relevant skills, experience, and flexibility to adjust to those changing industry dynamics, management teams that aren't too in love with their company as it stands. And I've seen too many businesses fail because they were unwilling to pivot away from something that just sort of was working. So I want an adaptable management team that shows a willingness when 
the need arises to, to actually uh, adapt their business to those dynamics. Uh, so BLA, I want uh, sustainable growth as well. So uh, the, the S in BLAST is sustainable growth. I want a realistic plan to achieve profitability without compromising their vision and values. So uh, I want sustainable profitable, preferably growth. Doesn't have to be profitable in the early stages and especially in the startups world. We know firsthand, you don't necessarily achieve profitability straight away. In this world though, interest rates have risen, capital's become more expensive. It's much more difficult for yet to be profitable growth stocks in particular to raise capital when needed and they need to be able to be generating sustainable operations, positive cash flows or a path to it, positive bottom line or a path to it. So we've covered that big impact, a large market, adaptable management, sustainable growth, and finally, uh, T, transparent operation. I want businesses that are transparent do right by every stakeholder involved. There's there's obviously a level of subjectivity to that. You know, I want to make sure that these businesses have their regulatory filings, press releases, uh, their straightforward interviews. They're not over-promising. You have to keep in mind that, that management teams are, when you're speaking with them as an investor, they're selling you their business. They're selling you on their business. And it's a rare thing to have them be truly transparent. Uh, that's just a broad overarching view uh, approach that I'm taking to find uh, stocks early in their growth stories um, with that blast methodology. Two questions for you. One is, can you tell us how do you find the data behind it? Some of them are very subjective. Some of them are objective, like a bit more hardcore, like in terms of right. data. Uh, yeah. So walk us through what is your process of identifying each of those components? Yeah. And then at the end, I kind of want to learn how long it takes for an investor as good as you to research one stock through the framework and come right. to a conclusion. I think it's a continuous process first. I don't think I would ever set a time limit on when I need to make a decision. It's, it's when I feel comfortable and I've gathered enough information. I read obsessively and continuously. I absorb everything I can with as objective a view as I can with these businesses. But yeah, that involves reading their annual filings, uh, reading their press releases with a grain of salt, and if possible, you know, contacting management and asking them hard questions. And some of my favorite businesses are businesses that are willing to engage with investors on those hard questions. It's hard to place a kind of a time frame on it because I'm still learning about businesses that I've invested in sometimes for over a decade, right? I owned iRobot stock for a decade plus, but before it agreed to be acquired by Amazon, uh, even though that's challenging. And I sold actually shortly after the deal was announced a little under $60 per share. And, you know, spoiler for, you know, even though it's, it's behind a paywall, I added a small position to my bottom line investing portfolio after the plunge, because I was kind of weighing the, you know, a, the likelihood that maybe Amazon will fight it and actually try and push forward with the acquisition, but B, the likelihood that iRobot might be able to resume life as a standalone business. Yeah, I think it's just an ongoing learning process. Just read everything I can about the business and I study their their ability to deliver on each of the points in my Blast Investing framework. And if I feel comfortable enough, I will move forward. Love or hate Jim Cramer, but one of the things that he always says that I kind of agree with was buy-in homework. Buy-in homework. I've never heard of that phrase, but actually right. maybe Yes. It is very similar to Peter Lynch approach. He had mm -hmm. about 1,400, like 1,400 stocks in his portfolio. And yeah. I recently was listening to this podcast episode 
with his sort of like prodigy, Jewel Tallinghast. He was saying the reason Peter or he and Jewel, Jewel had like 800 stocks in his portfolio before he gave up the reign to his successors. And right. the reason they actually buy so many stocks is because they buy so that it, it gives them the incentive and the right to do the research. Yes. So they yeah. basically did buy and do your homework. It's not yeah. like oh, buy and then you're done with it and you 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 forget about everything about yeah, that company. That, that's actually a, a fantastic point, I think, that, that is echoed by several other really famed investors. Actually, Tom Gaynor of Markel was previously their chief investment officer. Now he's the co-CEO. Actually, no, now he's the, the sole CEO. But Tom Gaynor of Markel said the same thing. He said, you might see stocks show up in Markel's portfolio with a small position. He said, sometimes he'll buy things just because... Yeah, exactly. It gives him the excuse to actually start doing more research because he has a, a vested stake in it. It's like, all right, now I have to dig in because <laughs> it's part of my portfolio. One of the things you know, I've written about at length over the past couple of years is just kind of my approach toward portfolio allocation and portfolio building. So I did start the bottom line investing premium portfolio with 12 stocks that I really like relative you know, to their current valuations relative to their long-term potential. But one of the things that uh, people who follow uh, my portfolio building process will find is that I tend to start small after the portfolio is in place, right? Right now it's in place uh, with some allocations for stocks that I like, but as I add new positions, you'll also find that I tend to start small uh, and I'm patient and that I will build those positions over time. Sometimes over the course of years, I'll continue to add to stocks. So I might start just begin with thirds or quarters of, uh, of the position sizing relative to where I want it to be in the portfolio. And then sometimes it falls and uh, I get to take advantage of that drop and I'm not completely exposed. And sometimes it continues to rally and at least I've been able to participate in that rally to some extent. But yeah, I think uh, patience is paramount when it comes to kind of building an opening position. Uh, and I know you have a watch list as well on bottom line investing. Yes. What is your process of like screening do you have an official process to come up with the watch list like how do you screen and build that watch list i don't have a you know specific screens i run them through but often it'll just be a business that catches my eye and uh, i know it's a relatively small business or an early business in its growth story and then i'll dig in and kind of you know look at their financials and sometimes i can rule them out pretty quickly when i see you know oh my goodness like they're burning cash really quickly they're probably going to need to raise it another three quarters or something again whether by new shares or by pulling out additional debt sometimes i will i'll look at historic cash flows and watch for signs of operating leverage taking hold, but also businesses that look massively unprofitable, but have a path toward either sustained profitability and or sustained positive cash flows. If I can find businesses that are sort of about to inflect or have recently inflected toward positive cash flows or uh, bottom line profitability, those are sort of golden opportunities to buy before the rest of the market catches on. And, and you'll find several of the businesses that are in, in the portfolio kind of meet that criteria of operating leverage and an inflection toward positive cash flows or profits. All right. So now let's switch to the best piece of the conversation, uh, stocks on your radar or right. any, any is a company that you're looking at that now nobody knows, or probably a very large company that everybody knows, but there's a moment and right. to jump in any of those strategies or any of those tickers on your radar i know people are just waiting to yeah uh, i'll spoil a couple other stocks in in the bottom line investing portfolio you know i've already mentioned uh, sort of that quasi speculative position a little bit of merger arbitrage uh with irobot 
But a couple of the other companies that I'm, I'm really excited to kind of see as we enter earnings season in earnest, two companies that uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of hear from are SoFi uh, Technologies and Lemonade. And uh, we'll, we'll call those them. Uh, you know, SoFi has uh, basically projected that it will achieve its first ever quarter of gap profitability on a consolidated basis. And we, we saw a positive operating income, I think, last quarter from its financial services arm. The only wild card as far as SoFi goes, in my mind, is whether it addresses certain unnamed analysts' concerns over the mark-to-market adjustments to its held for sale loan portfolio. So it's big into unsecured loans, but it also focuses on high income, high credit score borrowers. So uh, I think the risk is minimized, but as interest rates fall, uh, sometimes you see adjustments to mark to market portfolios that uh, that could impact its top and bottom lines. So that'll be interesting to watch, uh, but I like that stock and it's in the portfolio. Uh, Lemonade, meanwhile, has uh, they, the insure tech company, in case you're unfamiliar with Lemonade, you know they pay out, I think, a third of their quotes in like three seconds uh, with the help of artificial intelligence. And it's all AI at its core. Uh, truly remarkable company, uh, in my opinion. And I think as it scales, uh, it has the ability to use operating leverage to become significantly more profitable than incumbent insurers just because of the way it's been built uh, from its foundation. So it was only just founded in, I think, 2015. Uh, but Lemonade has said that it should be able to achieve sustained profitability over probably the next two years without raising additional capital. Uh, and I think that it'll do it with about 150, 000, $150 million in unlevered cash on its balance sheet. So um, that if it delivers on that, great. And it'll be fun to watch because I think that's another, you know, those are a couple sort of mispriced stocks in my mind relative to their long-term potential. Lemonade and SoFi, uh, I'll be watching closely. So uh, we shall see. Any advice for 2024 in terms of investment approach and philosophy right. to investors? Um, <laughs> I, I think... Uh, you know, strange things happen around elections. <laughs> I, I don't want to say hold your nose and buy, but I think investors are going to need to try extra hard to kind of tune out the noise. This year, uh, we have a combination of a, a you know, presidential election coming up, but also we have the Fed that is on the cusp of switching directions, right? They've paused interest rates, I think, for the last three months straight after a historic pace of rate increases that dated back to what was it, March 2022. And uh, the market is is forecasting anywhere between three and six rate declines, which on the surface should be good for long tail assets like higher risk growth stocks, right? Because they look more attractive relative to fixed income counterparts when rates decline as sort of a general rule, but the market's also forward-looking and we've enjoyed quite a rally, albeit with a little bit of a pullback. Maybe we're building a base. I, I think that's where stock pickers tend to thrive because as the markets rallied, there's still a lot of businesses that haven't come anywhere near revisiting their 2021 highs or in early 2022 highs, nor should they have maybe arguably ever traded at those highs. But I think we have a lot of small and mid-cap growth stocks that have been building Basis, and I'm excited to see what happens when the market finally catches on that they are attractive values relative to some of the other segments of the market. One of the things I think investors need to accept is that the stock market is volatile. That's sort of a price of entry, right? As we mentioned, Peter Lynch, he said that he's bought stocks at 12 watched them fall to two and then rally back to 24 because he thought they were attractive at 12. And sometimes the stock market doesn't cooperate. But that's also the beauty of being a retail investor is 
your ability to build your portfolio on your own schedule, right? Uh, as Warren Buffett also says, it's it's like a baseball game. You you'd never have to swing at a pitch if you don't want to, and you'll never strike out. Well, great. So we know we can find your bottom line investing portfolio on your website, bottomlineinvesting.com, on a stock card as a premium portfolio, only available for VIP users. But where else can people find you? And if they want to follow you and have a conversation with you, where can they go? I'm easy to find on uh, on Twitter as well. You can email me if you want, steve at bottomlineinvesting.com. I monitor that and personally respond to everything. But find me on Twitter, X, and uh, it's Steve Symington. It's Steve underscore Symington, so S-Y-M. But I'm easy to find uh, if you want to. And uh, you can find my socials on Bottom Line Investing linked there as well. People who know me know I never tire of talking about the stock market. They say, oh, you do this for a living. Why would you talk about it? I'm like, yeah, because it's a job that I... I don't really need a vacation from because that's all I like to do.